Hello, you're listening to Film Greys. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the folk rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here once again to talk about cinema. This episode is our annual capitulation to the mechanics of the film industry. We did it last year for our BAFTA bait episode, but the BAFTAs had quite an interesting slate of nominations, actually. So we're talking about all the films that are nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, because mm. we've got Oscar fever. The Oscars are on Sunday. We're recording this on 4.20. I don't know who's hosting the Oscars. I know apparently they're predicted to have less than 5 million viewers or whatever. And it's like going to be a real disaster for the Academy. But they're still making everyone turn up, which is interesting. They, they're having a real actually, award ceremony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I know the BAFTAs was like a different, like split over a whole weekend. And I guess it was all like via video, but with like the Royal Albert Hall as a base or something like that. Is that correct or have I just completely made that up? That feels, that feels right. I remember you sent me that picture of Emerald Fennell's speech and her background, which I guess is just like her house or whatever, looks like the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey or whatever. But yeah, it's really happening. We love the Oscars. We've already done an episode on Mank, so we shan't be talking about that very much today, I don't think. Thank God, but listen to that episode. Well, as you said, we're going to be running through all eight Best Picture nominees. I think we probably will talk about Mank a little bit, um, just... I guess, having seen all the contenders now, just sort of comparing it in that respect, but we're certainly not going to be going too deep into it. I think all the films, we're going to try and avoid uh, sort of spoilers and, you know, real, you know, deep excavating. Uh, A lot of them are historical dramas, though, Um, you know, matters of historical record to a certain extent. So, you know, no spoilers are possible really if you're talking about the trial of the Chicago 7 or Judas and the Black Messiah um, and then it becomes a matter of like how they deal with these you know historical subject matters rather than like the mystery of <laughs> they're not mysteries you know um, so I think we can get into those ones a little bit but we're not going to spoil um, well I guess we are going to spoil all of these films <laughs> this is the spoiled we're cinema for me so, yeah. but man when we did this last year I was looking back at the film you know the films were lit man we had Parasite The Joker The Irishman you know and now we've got wait and see we got Borat I, I thought Borat is best like adapted screenplay sure nominated. is it because it's adapted from Ali G in the USI or whatever or like Borat's TV show maybe or it's adapted from Stroshek. <laughs> Stroshek is going to come up a lot in this episode, I feel. Recently picked for the film club by a friend of the show, Brandon. Big hit. Your ideal film, in a way, I feel. Ah, uh, yeah, I loved it. Uh, we're going to talk about Minari soon. And, um, yeah, I feel like there are a lot of comparisons uh, in terms of its treatment of uh, the like immigrant experience in, sure. in the USA. Although, yeah, we'll, we will get into how extremely different they are <laughs> as well. <laughs> There's other films we won't be talking about that have been nominated that were quite interesting. I thought Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was like a shoe-in for like all of these nominations. Well, I guess it's got acting nominations, but especially the August Wilson adaptation from 2016, Fences, that got nominated for like everything. But this, I guess it's just such a jam-packed category this year. The, the slate of films is so strong that um, they can't even, you know, find space to nominate like a very American heritage stage adaptation. I love the play, but um, just some of the sequences were just hideous. Like, I don't want to sound like Lex G, but like the Netflix sheen was just like too much this time around. But it's an interesting subject matter. Kind of a bad adaptation of a play. I didn't get around to watching it. It's 
right at the top of my watch list. Don't worry. Um, we haven't seen One Night in Miami, but that looks awful. I think really like I guess that's not a historical film or whatever. That's like a it's like a what if right? Like, okay, I see. Shaun the Sheep, Farmageddon was terrific. I'd recommend that to everyone off the bat. That's a proper movie. Yeah, I'm really down. Oh, also just a disclaimer at the top. I don't think we've seen any of the. I don't know what the category is actually called. Best. Best foreign un-American film. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, but there are a bunch of films in there that we want to watch and we'll probably be discussing soon. Mm. Um, Alisha Usmanov produced um, <laughs> Dear Comrade. <laughs> I mean, I want to watch that shit. But uh, the Romanian documentary Collective, I think, looks really interesting. And uh, Quivadis, um, Ada, the uh, Bosnian film. Another Round looks great. Can't wait to watch that, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dipsomania, the Guided by Voices movie will <laughs> slow down. Uh, we'll talk about all those films in due course. But yeah, again, today we're just going to be looking at the eight Best Picture nominees. And hopefully we'll get this out before... We definitely will. <laughs> the Oscar fever is coursing through my veins Great. as we prepare to climb the Mount Olympus of <laughs> coronavirus cinema. So the first film we're going to talk about, because we want to start this on a relative high, no spoilers, <laughs> Um, is Minari by Lee Isaac Chung, which was a big hit at Sundance last year and has built up a lot of steam since then in the industry. Mm. And Oscar likes to reward, you know, success stories of filmic enterprise yeah. like that. Uh, doesn't like to reward A24 distributed films typically. Let's get to it right away. Where the fuck is First Cow in any of these, you know? Yeah, that's definitely what I'm leaning towards. Mm. As much as I loved Minari, like... Uh, First Cow, I think, is a truly sublime film. Yeah. And really, whatever filmmaking department you're looking to reward, that should have been in the mix. Maybe not best uh, actress in a leading performance, because uh, it's <laughs> there's not really any women in it. But really, apart from that... Yeah, but, you know, First Cow doesn't lie to anyone about the kind of place that America is or has been, right? You know, Unlike several films we're going to talk about, today but i don't think minari is one of those films it's the story of a korean american family who move from san francisco to like alabama the alabama arkansas arkansas yeah and they live in a like a house on wheels as the dad tries to start like a farm growing like korean produce yeah yeah so it's a sort of a strosek uh style uh living situation mm-hmm. um the dad is played by Stephen yun fine actor yeah uh, I feel like he's a sort of film Grey's fave. Um, yeah, sure. You know, I guess Burning and um, a supporting role in Sorry to Bother You are the ones, but he's sensational on this. Such a mad different performance to Burning. Mm. Um, I mean, both have a lot of, like, stuff going on beneath the surface, I think. A lot of, like, interiority and, like... Mm. He plays characters in both where he's, like, got a lot that he can't say to the other people around or whatever, you know. Sure. On that note, another thing that reminded me of um, Shrosek was uh, the role of language in this film. Mm. Um, I guess there's just a sort of dual language, like the kids. Um, there are two kids uh, in the house. One of them uh, is a sort of semi-autobiographical film. So mm. it's, you know, the, the little boy, you know, gets more like sort of screen time than the girl. But what, whatever, it's irrelevant. It's so toxic, this film. 
Uh, <laughs> but like the kids are, I guess, are meant to have grown up in America, and like the parents yeah. are like um, immigrants, and yeah, the way the sort of language is used in the film is like really interesting, much like Strasek, where it's way more of a barrier, it's way more frustrating. This film is sort of a story of, even though it has like tragic aspects mm. to it, it's way more. It's like an extremely chill film, <laughs> and yeah, I guess like uh, going into it. If you heard it's a film about, you know, Korean-American experience in the 1980s, you might think, oh, you know, it's about race relations, mm. you know, especially in America at the moment where, like, um, especially at the moment in America where, um, I guess, American and Asian-American, like, sort of identities and relations are sort of coming to a head. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not really about that. They meet a few, like, sort of locals that are like, your face looks funny. But then straight away, it's like, you know, they're accepted into the community. Mm. And while I guess that gestures towards the, like the sort of normalization of like sort of racist behavior, but their experience isn't like badly shaped by uh, those like race relations. Yeah, I think it's interesting to have a film that even if it doesn't directly acknowledge it, it sort of sets out the fact that the Korean War and like American imperialism has played like a role in like shaping those sort of race relations or mm. whatever in a way that you don't get with like films about like Arab Americans, you know. Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. There are two characters in this film then whose experiences are sort of really shaped by those like sort of, uh, yeah, I guess the Korean War. Um, mm. The grandma played by Yoon Yoo-jung. Um, <sighs> what a great grandma. Sorry about that. Yeah, uh, I guess like much like Mother, Bong Joon-ho's um, film, she's like comes from like sort of like tv like sort of soap background mm. and then like this is like a big sort of breakout role i read an interview with lee isaac chung where he's um saying at first he didn't like sort of tell his parents that he was making this like sort of very like sort of sensitive like familial like semi-autobiography right because it's like the simpsons right where it's like he's the little boy and like all the other characters are like mirrors of the <laughs> yeah. people he grew up with or, yeah exactly yeah. then when he said that this actress was on board like his parents were like cool and then obviously it was like a really cathartic experience for them to all see it. Because like it's not really this is her, like, cool at all. Like it's really nice. Definitely. Even though it does dramatise like fights and like struggles and stuff like that. Yeah. What I was going to say about, I mean, yeah, this is obviously like her 300th film or something like that. Like screen performance. She I was, think it is more TV though. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, the other character is, uh, is Will Patton's character, who, when he's introduced, you think he's, you know, a danger, basically. Yeah, sure. He behaves very erratically, um, and he's, like, a sort of evangelical, hmm. who communicates with God, and is very, like, sort of, you there's know, the southern preacher, sort of, like... Wise blood or something. Yeah. But there's an amazing scene where the kids drive past him in the school bus, and he's doing this thing he does every Sunday, which is just carrying a cross yeah. through, like, you know, miles and miles of landscape. Fascinating character. But again, he's a character who's meant to be a sort of Korean War vet. Hmm. But, yeah, it's, a, a, I guess, a benign and subtle exploration of like these sorts of relationships yeah it's hot it is heartwarming like it's yeah. like it leaves you with a good feeling even though it's about struggle and like i would say like the relations that are more like difficult isn't necessarily personal but is with the land right and this like a film about starting a farm and starting a business and like is that I mean, it's interesting to set in the reagan era or whatever at a time when like individual enterprise is like very very incentivized or mm. whatever and it's a film about that and about how like you know put putting yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever yeah but it doesn't ascribe and i think it's to do with the music and stuff like that to me that doesn't really ascribe like a traditional view 
of this sort of thing or whatever. Mm. If you compare it to, to like something like um some of these David O. Russell films like Joy or whatever, which is a film I hated, which is like an Oscar film a few years ago about like I can't even remember what it's about, but it's about like uh Jennifer Lawrence wants to start some sort of business and um, it's supposed to make you feel good about the fact that she makes loads of money at the end or whatever. But it's not like a, it's a different sort of aspirational politics, I think. Mm. You don't ever feel like Stephen Yeun's character, the one that wants to start the farm and start producing Korean fresh produce for the Korean community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you never feel like that's a cynical thing that he's doing. No, no, no. Um, you always feel like he's like, you know, I guess however you feel about Enterprise, like is you know, we're going to see some much more grim examples in the films that we'll be talking about later in the episode. Um, One thing that uh, this film really reminded me of, and I sort of hate saying this because every like sort of nice, warm Asian film that I enjoy, I compare to the work or the output of Studio Ghibli. But I think there is a logic for it here. Okay. (laughs) Hayao Miyazaki, one of the two sort of founding fathers, he's a director that really sort of privileges like children's perspectives, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I guess he's like a real like sort of grandfather figure and is like very sort of sensitive towards this shit. Very nostalgic as well. Um, mm. And like the colour palette of this film really mm. fed into that. Like very saturated, like rich, yeah. sort of arable, pastoral yes. tones. Um, but also, yeah, the fact that it's mainly from this little kid's perspective. Even if he's not in the scene, like, you know, you feel like it's sort of rooted around like his conceptualisation of what's going on. What's his name? Alan? Alan Kim. Um, love him yeah i hope you you know oscar <laughs> likes to reward children and oh god <laughs> i think this was a great kid's uh, performance he's definitely the the point of focalization or yeah. like identification or whatever yeah. and i think that's even like what you were saying about the fact that you don't really get an insight into what the sister's going through or whatever or the fact that you know when the parents have arguments or whatever he doesn't really understand but he knows mm. it's like an event or whatever and they're like, you know, all the stuff with his grandma is fucking great. You know? Yeah, we haven't even spoken really about the grandma. And like, she is the sort of, I guess, the standout character, really. Sure. Have you seen that? I think you recommended it to me, actually, that Lily Tomlin film. Grandma. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That, again, is about a sort of unconventional grandma. Mm. I say unconventional, just like a like an older woman figure that doesn't adhere to the sort of societal expectations. Um, well, such a key thing of this is Alan Kim's character being like, you're not uh you're You're not not a real grandma yeah a real grandma yeah Yeah, exactly she's a fascinating character though just like playing card games like drinking yeah Um, she moves to america and she just like first time in america and she just immediately goes in for like watching wrestling on tv one day you know her character reminded me of watching that one of those terrible awful fascist border force programs right Mm. i think it was an australian one potentially where this like um asian grandma is like trying to bring some apples in right and, like, the shit is hitting the fan. Like, she wants to bring the apples in. They're saying, like, no, you can't. This character, like, comes in with, like, bags of, like, anchovies and stuff. And then grows a highly invasive, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, the eponymous um, plant minery, uh, like, that, like, she grows in this, like, uh, creek, right? Yeah. And then at the end, they, like, you know, they're cultivating it. And it's, like... And it, you know, it struggles to grow, but it comes good. back stronger, every yeah, time, more tasty year on year. It just reminded me of that. Um, <laughs> but she's a brilliant character, and it's a brilliant performance. She won the best, um, best actor, best supporting uh, actress. Yeah, uh, at the Baftas. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Baftas are the only award ceremonies that we're going to compare this to because pff, we don't acknowledge right. the Golden Globes in this house. <laughs> we're fully on um, the Silver Globe people over here. All of these films, though, are like you know, all like 
if you look at their like accolades Wikipedia page, which is largely where I've collated all this like comparative <laughs> information from, like they're all being recognised for the same roles, the same aspects. Sure. You know, it's very like. Well, that's about the campaigns, though, isn't it? It's about yeah, like, well, for it's... your consideration. They tell you it's the studios who tell you whether someone's a supporting or a leading actor or something. Yeah, we'll, we'll come to. Interesting. We'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll talk about that more later. Minari, I'd really recommend it. I think there's probably still loads of stuff that we could explore about this film because it is. Yeah, go on. Go on. No, no, no. I was going to say, despite being like placid and pleasant on the surface, but also like not being the sort of film you expect it to be, it's rich, you know? Every sequence like had something pretty profound to say. And I appreciated the filmmaking, you know, especially by not being, you know, we haven't really spoken about Lee Isaac Chung or whatever. He seems to have been quite a jobbing filmmaker, worked like did a second unit direction on a bunch of like normal films. And this is kind of a breakthrough for him to like make an autobiographical film and it be like the thing that captivates people is a nice message that we can receive from this Oscar season. Yeah, I really loved it. I really loved it. It's a very sweet film. Just on you saying there, there is so much more to say about mm. it. Um, there are a few please, like Nathan please. for you moments. That really <laughs> cracked me up. Um, they perform an exorcism, which was like literally the exact same as the ghost realtor. Um, Come out with the spirit! Come out! That's my favourite um, shit. Man. Yeah, and also there's a a grandparent drinking a grandchild's pee, um, which is another just like seminal Nathan for you moment, which is replicated in this heartwarming film. <laughs> Yeah, check it out. Um, it's, you know, on VOD or whatever. All these oh, films yeah. are going to have theatrical releases once cinema's open here in like yeah, a month. I think probably. Minari is going to be on at the Prince Charles Cinema and probably like in chains and stuff like that. Like yeah. in chains. In like views and audience and stuff like that. Go see it. I'd, look, I'd love to see it in the cinema. I thought it was really nice. The simplicity of the filmmaking and the editing like will lend itself to being seen in the cinema. Definitely. Good movie. It's about to get a whole lot worse. So next up, we're going to talk about two films probably in tandem because they deal with the same historical period the medium cool extended universe that's exactly it um events surrounding the 1968 democratic convention in chicago the trial of the chicago seven i think we'll talk about first great (laughs) what was that um jerry rubin quote you sent me okay jack from real politics sent this to me so thank you jack jerry rubin the stockbroker and Yippie, who is played by Jeremy Strong in this mm. film. My favorite thing about this film. He said, if you call us the Chicago 7, you're a racist. Cool. So today we're going to be talking about Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7. What a movie, dude. Yeah. So the 7 plus mm. 1, Bobby Seal, are a sort of hodgepodge of um, protest groups. And sort of leaders that are basically arrested. Were they charged with like incitement or That's something right. like that? So it's um in that respect very comparable to Steve McQueen's small acts film, the feature length one, Mangrove, which um again similarly deals with people protesting mm-hmm. against uh well, in that case, police brutality and institutional racism yeah. and then going through this sort of protracted trial and they were you know known as like the mangrove nine in the media it's very similar sort of you know history repeats itself or whatever anyway it's an extremely aaron sorkin treatment of the trial that's the only way i could describe it yeah the story is told in flashback well it actually opens with like a sort of scene setting montage um and it actually uses um 
sort of archive footage throughout interspersed with like sort of reconstructed scenes they'll like throw in like a little clip of like police being someone just to like you know i don't know (laughs) give you some context yeah uh it's an extremely like wet to give you the impression that this film takes place in the real world yeah (laughs) i mean it doesn't it fabricates and distorts and I mean, it's a dramatization basically, but it, you know, it's rife with inaccuracies and like sort of simplifications of extremely like sort of multifocal issues. <laughs> so I didn't watch this film for ages um, after it came out in like October or something. Yeah. Just put it on Netflix and it's, just, it's been sitting there. I don't think that many people have watched it, but it did autoplay after we watched the 1517 to Paris for Film Club, which was a bit cruel of Netflix, I would say. But. <laughs> I did end up watching this on the weekend of like the Sarah Everhard vigil and like the start of these like kill the bill protests Mm. and stuff like that. Despite being totally predisposed to hate this shit, it did touch something within me where I was just like really, really concerned about our rights protest and like Mm. not that, you know, we haven't been living in a fucking borderline fascist place for years. The encroachment against our civil liberties and the removal of, you know, the Human Rights Act, for example, is just uh, abysmal, but we're in america right now so you know that's just taken for granted i think so you know i was susceptible but even i despite enjoying the like snappiness of the first like half an hour of this film i was just like horrified by the end to be honest like yeah the end is mortifying (laughs) but you know people talk about it like but it definitely it takes a side you know it takes a stance unlike the west wing or whatever but it doesn't because it it really pulls all its punches, despite being like giving you all the evidence for a cap shit or whatever, and backing in a truly liberal sense, you know. But like the yippies and like Abby Hoffman, they were you know they were real Marxists, you know. Yeah. Abby. Oh, all of that is like sort of sublimated here into like a smorgasbord of like Americanism, where you know by the end everyone is unified by um, a sort of benign nationalism, where like you know everyone's. I mean, it has a crazy ensemble cast. I guess we'll get into that a little bit the more. The cast is mad. Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays, um, I guess, is he like the attorney? He's like the prosecutor. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like um, at the end, um, I don't even care. Like this is, it's not even what happened because they like changed the character. But one of the defendants, played by Eddie Redmayne in this instance, as his like closing statement for representing all the defendants, like is like, oh yeah, I'll take a word. And then he starts like reading out all the like fallen American soldiers from the, from the Vietnam War. And you know, everyone's like whooping and like the the music is ra- increasingly rousing. And then Joseph Gordon Levitt's character like stands up as well in solidarity. His co- his colleague or whatever is like a what what are you doing? And he says, respect for the fallen. Let's show him some respect, sir. And yeah, as he said, it's actually just like nauseating and just completely misses the point. But he read out the names of the Vietnamese dead as well in the actual trial or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And here it's just like, they're protesting against the war because... It's that Michael Moore shit though. That's what that's what Fahrenheit 9/11 is all about. Is like there's no like fundamental critique of like why they're in the war. It's just like bad for yeah the troops or whatever. It's such a misreading of yeah. I think just its treatment of the multi-perspectival nature of these protests is is one of the most criminal things about it. Every time there's a crowd scene, uh, a flashback to the the protest, 
They're it looks all like chan- Justice League, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's that, and they're all chanting the same thing, yeah. right? So when they're all walking in, it's the whole world is watching. Yeah, have you ever been to the a protest? The whole like world that? is watching. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. It's the fucking Christopher Nolan school of right. representing protest, right. right? Whereas here, it's actually meant to be on the same fucking side. This reminds me of um, just the other day reading what's his name, Adam McKay. Well, he made Vice, which was rubbish. He said, like, Aaron Sorkin is the right-wing version of me. Or oh, it was this film? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, oh, well, <laughs> I don't know. Just the, the way it sort of distills these, like, extremely conflict. That's what the whole story's about. This ensemble cast, like, yeah. they all represent, like, different schools of thought, you know. As yeah. you said, um, the yippies, um, Sasha Baron Cohen and Jeremy Strong's characters, they're, like, uh, you know, Jewish radi- Marxists. Radicals, yeah, yeah. They, like, have a very specific... Yeah perspective and you know you have like um david dellinger like the sort of old what's the it's, actor's it's like name a scout, john carroll lynch yeah like pretty Great iconic actor, actor. Yeah, yeah. yeah um he's the guy that actually read out the names in real life but you know he's just like a more like a he's like a sort of pacifist dad right um and he has like a sort of ethical awakening where like he ends up punching someone in the courtroom when they try and restrain him and then he's like oh oh and then he like has like a little like mental break like because his son's watching him like the hypocrisy yeah, is yeah. too much to bear this is all oh, i don't know it was like a really bad play um sure. and as you said yeah the dialogue at the beginning you're like oh yeah snappy the camera's always moving you know this is so dynamic it's got jeremy strong in it <laughs> yeah yeah and on your recommendation i watched all of succession quite recently and yeah i mean he's he's great it's fine um i thought i would say one thing that i did appreciate was that like i hate eddie redmayne and i hate eddie redmayne movies like he's always in this oscar slate every year and he makes terrible films he's a terrible actor he's one of these like you know the eton school yeah of, you know acting or whatever i hate it but he was used particularly well in this film for just having this like total scab energy you know like i mean there's a pretty harrowing moment in like american legal proceedings when bobby seal is bound and gagged and brought back Mm. into the courtroom right which is you know an image that is just like it's so harrowing it's not treated like particularly like for what it was by aaron sorkin i don't think it's just another thing that happens like another courtroom event i like courtroom dramas right but yeah like everyone refuses to rise for the judge again like i don't give a fuck about these institutions or whatever like the significance of this gesture but like eddie redmayne's character tom hayden who was actually a california senator and like friend of the kennedys i think he communicates the milieu he's from he was well used but i would say sasha baron cohen like i've heard some people talk some crazy shit about sasha baron cohen's performance like how so? Like, best acting. Like, it's nom- he's nominated for best leading actor, right? And he's, uh, you know, oh, it's like he brings something totally new to he's, American cinema. It's like an Ali G character. The accent is insanely unconvincing. <laughs> what do you mean it's unconvincing? <laughs> so I said to him, yeah, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> But they're quite a good duo. He probably like, would against me. But... Him and him and Jeremy Strong. There's something about like I could watch. I could have watched a whole film about like Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman. Definitely not this film. But like they do have a chemistry. But he's really bad, man. Like he's, he's not a good actor. Like in this, he's also about twice the age of what Abby Hoffman was. Obviously. Well, yeah, that's yeah, classic. Of course. Um, oh, we'll talk about that with the next one. There are good performances in here, but it's just like a extremely Hollywood treatment of like complicated historical events and it was always going to be a pile of wet mush it's really cringe man i think it's really embarrassing you know? yeah i just can't understand how anyone could watch that ending and like be on board 
without like feeling a bit nauseated. Well, if you fundamentally believe in the institutions, right, and you think like, yeah, our nation, their nation's institutions are glorious, but they are just like occupied by a few bad apples right now. Like, you know, if you believe that, then fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> You're also listening to Film Greys. We're doing a rundown of all the Best Picture nominees at the Academy Awards this year. All the best films. <laughs> yeah. So we've just done the trial of Chicago 7. And I think it makes sense now to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, um, there's a lot of overlap here. Fred Hampton is in the trial of Chicago Seven for about five seconds or whatever. Yeah, well, yeah, he's in it a bit. But he's, he's in a it a sort bit. Of peripheral yeah, I feel like you see his corpse more than you see the living Fred Hampton in this film. Um, in the trial of the Chicago Seven, he's playing a sort of informal advisor mm. um, to Bobby Seale. Halfway through the trial of the Chicago Seven, it's announced that um, Fred Hampton has been killed. Mm. That's just you know, a, for a dramatic effect, basically, yeah. in the context of that yeah, film, yeah. because you have no Bobby Seale had what... been, um, you know, acquitted for his case was being treated separately f- mm-hmm. from the rest of the eight at that point, thus rendering it <laughs> the Chicago 7. But yeah, just for dramatic effect. Anyway, this film is about Fred Hampton's betrayal by a close affiliate. Fred Hampton, who is played by British actor Daniel Kaluuya. I guess he's like 10 years older than Fred Hampton was when he was assassinated. It's a bit mad where, like, I know we said no spoilers, but this doesn't really count. But like, at the end of this film where it's like, Fred Hampton was... 20 years old when he was murdered or whatever. Yeah, 21. Fucking hell. Yeah, well, they didn't exactly age Daniel Kaluuya down. They gave him a beer gut for this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it was really confusing. But it's that kind of school of acting where, like, because if you listen to a Fred Hampton speech, it does sound pretty similar. But that's more about Fred Hampton and his sort of, like, oratorial qualities or whatever. Yeah. And being able to, like, deliver really passionate speeches like a Shakespearean actor or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Very, um, you know... The sort of material that's very easy to turn into like a very appealing advert. Sure, man. Well, that's, you that's know. what it is. Kind yeah, of. It, it, it does feel like that. This is a film in which the two main characters were both nominated for Best Supporting Actor. They Lakeith Stanfield plays the eponymous Judas. Yeah. And it cool. is actually in a hagiographical mode, just like while we're on that like sort of yeah. biblical allegorical tip. I watched King of Kings the other day. Amazing film. I'd really, that was a real politically incisive look at the Jesus story. But this, I don't know. It has like a bunch of screenwriters. Including the Lucas Brothers. Yeah. From 22 Jump Street and the Lucas Brothers Removal Company, which is <laughs> so good. But yeah, it's a film with two supporting leads. It really does feel like that. I know it's a bit like tired commentary on it, but at no point do you feel... Lakeith Stanfield is like, you know, again, we're talking about, sorry to bother you very fleetingly earlier. Sure. He's great in that. Here, he just looks shifty the whole time. Daniel Kaluuya looks heroic the whole time. That's it. You've got Martin Sheen with the fucking worst prosthetics I've ever yeah, seen to on. look like Jagger Hoover. We've got Jesse Plemons. Like, everyone loves Jesse Plemons. I love him. All these characterizations were just extremely one-dimensional. What? Yeah, that's true. I, what I would say is I thought Lakeith Stanfield was way better in this film than Daniel Kaluuya. They're different acting styles. Yeah. And what you're saying about him looking shifty. But I think his... His acting, not even just like the uneasy scenes where he's like in deep cover or whatever as an FBI informant, but when he's, those sequences when he's meeting up with Jesse Plemons and he's just listening, like, he's... Yeah, you get a sense it's not a guy that's uh, comfortable either way, you know, and he's like, he is damned Mm. from the beginning of the film, basically. But I just didn't feel like they lent into that enough, man, because that is the most interesting thing. It starts and ends with this archival footage 
of his character, Bill O'Neill, being interviewed in this show in some Eyes on the prize, right. Yeah, and then when it broadcast, he killed himself. Like, or, like, the day, the day he shot it, he ran out into traffic. Mm. The guy was obviously, like... That is the psychological tension that should have underpinned this film, but, like, too much going on. And yeah. it was, like, they wanted to make a film about Fred Hampton, right? That was the aim. Yeah, but this was just the most, like, compelling way to tell the story or whatever. But it just ended yeah. up feeling a bit muddled. I would say, I would, okay, I'll shout out two things. Firstly, the sequence where he's actually, like, hustling and then he gets done for stealing this car and pretending to be an FBI um, agent, which kind of sparks the whole plot and is a real thing yeah. that happened. That was... A, the filmmaking in that sequence, like specifically, felt completely different to the rest of the film. I thought, I thought that was really mm. cool. Lived in. It was like an eight-minute scene, and like, it was. And it has the cool tune in it. Yeah, I keep on forgetting the name, but it's so cool, isn't it? Yeah. The Ronald Kirk tune we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, really fire. I thought it was gonna feel more like Spike Lee's Malcolm X, which again is like a hagiographical film, but. Just like more sort of rigorously structured. Yeah. Sure. That's a more epic story, I guess, Malcolm X. But Malcolm X, they're like, you have characters talking about theory in like really long sequences, where in this, like, they just throw around the word like proletarian revolution. Oh, it's like some of the most uncomfortable line readings I've ever heard. Like, yeah. uh, like as you said, like, hey man, I thought you wanted to start the. It's like proper, That's like, check notes. Like, yeah. <laughs> the... yeah. But at least, like, it doesn't erase that, you know, it at least acknowledges that Marxist Definitely. language in a way that the Sorkin film just fails to do Definitely. completely. and that is admirable. And it's probably, as an educational film, it's probably all right. This and The Trial of the Chicago 7, I know I've already pointed yeah. towards some of the, you know, inaccuracies and dramatic liberties in, yeah. in that one. But yeah, both of them, if you don't know about these historic figures these events like you will leave them knowing more about it and like having a greater sense or a reinforced sense of the injustices which sure. you know give the flavor to these stories sure. institutional racism like class antagonism or exploitation like yeah. you, you know what i mean yeah yeah of course i feel like they were both not satisfying yeah i mean i was struggling to actually remember my feelings about this film doing this podcast like not because it's 420 but just like <laughs> I remembered very little of this film, man. It was very just normal. Like, yeah. And I thought it could have been so sick, you know. I listened to the soundtrack album a bunch, like, before it came out, just because that's, like, a completely different project. Or, I guess, it's, like, songs inspired by the film or whatever. Cool. Some, good, some good songs on that. If you like, sort of, like, serious rap music made by, like, commercial artists who haven't really done anything interesting in a few years, that's, you know, worth listening to. The song at the end of this film is terrible, though, I think. The, oh, yeah. The Her, the H-E-R song. Yeah. It's, it's real bad, I think, but... <laughs> Phil Graves cover coming soon. Let's, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, it was just really, I thought it was going to be sick, to be honest. Yeah, I was excited to watch it and I was underwhelmed. I mean, they're both Warner Brothers, like Amazon slash Netflix productions. They're never going to be that mad, that radical. But as, it, as we've said, though, it does gesture towards that. So there's space for it. And then it just comes down to like the writing and the. Yeah. You know, the look of the film. And Before we finish, I thought Dominique Fishback was actually really good. I thought she probably had the best performance in this film as... Fred Hampton's partner. Partner, yeah. I don't know her name, I'm afraid to say. But she was great. Yeah. Just on that, actually, I thought the way it like dealt with uh, the role of women in the Black Panthers was really interesting, actually. Mm. And we're talking about the ways in which, I guess, is like a sort of egalitarian principle, basically. Um 
as part of that broader left-wing ideology. But I think the way they handled that was interesting. And yeah, if we're talking about it as like a sort of educational film, again, mm. like that just, you know, shows more sort of facets of its subject. Certainly. And I really appreciated how many scenes took place at like community activism things and like, you know, kitchens and like... Yeah, definitely. How big that community feeding program plays as a plot point or whatever. Definitely, man. Although that does remind me that it just seems so confused how it handles the like rainbow coalition. Like you like Yeah. I... They they walk into like a like Confederate flag toting like community hall of like mm. you know, the white working class or whatever, and then like straight away they're won over. Yeah. I don't know. I've, again, it's just a bit ham fisted, but admirable all the same. <laughs> Certainly. If we'd seen either of these films in the cinema, do you think you would have felt differently about it? It's so hard to say. I, I think the the reason I'm leaning towards no mm. is because I've definitely enjoyed some of these watching yeah, yeah. watching them on the you know the same screen or whatever. But yeah, obviously being in the cinema, you may be more susceptible. I watched the trial of Chicago Seven on my phone, <laughs> and I don't regret it. <laughs> Scratch my itch, sweet any bridge. Welcome you back to town. Come out of your porch and step into your parlor, and I'll show you how it all went down. Out with the truckers and the kickers and the cowboy angel, and a good saloon in every single town. Oh, but I remember something you once told me. I'll be damned if it did not come true. Twenty thousand roads I went down, down, down. They all led me straight back home to you. Cause we're headed west to grow up with the country. Cross those prairies with those waves of grain. I saw my devil, and I saw my deep blue sea, and I thought about a calico bonnet from Cheyenne to Tennessee. We're now going to move on to talk about the last of the four sort of period films, I guess, uh, a film set in 2012. It's probably the Oscar front runner. It won the BAFTAs for Best Picture and Best Director. And some of you may have seen it as well because it was screened in cinemas nationwide in October along with the London Film Festival. And I know quite a few people who've seen it in the cinema. I'm quite jealous of them, in a sense. It's Chloe Zhao's Nomadland from 2020, starring Francis McDormand and David Strathairn and a bunch of real people. Chloe Zhao also made The Rider, which is quite a big success, I think, a few years ago. And Songs My Brothers Taught Me, two films neo-realist films with a full cast of non-actors unlike this film and it's a story of fern which is from a town empire in nevada that um after the gypsum plant sort of shuts down it becomes like a ghost town as has happened to several you know deindustrialized towns and cities all across america and the world and her husband passes away very sadly as well and she's like mourning him throughout the whole film and she gets in a van and she goes to work for uh, herself and you know carve out her own existence against the famous American landscape that you've heard us talk about 
on episodes about films such as Wagon Master or News of the World. But um, she's got a van and uh, she joins a sort of community of nomads. And then in the third act, she like falls in love and then maybe flirts with not becoming a houseless person anymore. Apart from that, it's a bunch of uh, hanging out and a bunch of working and fixing your van and driving and golden hour and looking at the landscape. Chloe Tao, I guess, adapted it from this 2017 book about nomadic culture, mm. specifically these sort of middle-aged people sort of taken to the road. Uh, people that are like marginalised from like yeah. opportunities in like the sort of CV capitalist culture sure. or like resume, I guess, is that. You know, or <laughs> or people that are just like stuck, like at the sort of lowest economic rung, like mm. you know. Um. So yeah, Francis McDormand's character. Um. I'm not actually sure. I haven't read this book. It's sorry. It's called Nomadland: Surviving America in the 21st Century by Jessica Bruder. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm not sure role sort of Francis McDormand's character would play in that. Yeah. The majority of the cast are real nomads. Um, or van dwellers, or houseless people, or whatever the terminology you want. What's the guy's name? Bob Wells. Yeah, so this guy's like a YouTuber that runs like, I guess it's like a sort of libertarian, sort of self-sufficiency. We have them over here as well, but they do like medieval shit, like (laughs) live in the woods. Yeah, (laughs) or at like HS2 sites. Right, get arrested Um, by a robot. Yeah, (laughs) But yeah, otherwise, it's uh, seasonal work. So Francis McDormand's character works at points in an Amazon factory. This is a film that, like, depicts uh, working for Amazon in, a, I, I think, like, an extremely uncritical way. That's, like, one of the main popular criticisms. Yeah, of it was, it. like, the main thing I knew about this film, I think, because I encountered a lot of critiques about it before I'd seen it, which yeah. is always bad. Yeah. And it was, it's quite surprisingly early in the film. It's, like, the third scene or whatever. Yeah. Oh, and by the way... Every scene in this film is like maximum a minute and a half. I felt <laughs> like I was watching Harry Potter 6 or something <laughs> like that. But that lends itself to how unanalytical and uninterrogative I found this film to be. Maybe if a couple of scenes had been a bit longer, could have been something a bit more interesting about it. But as it stands, it's a bunch of glances. It's like a photo book or whatever, mm. some nice shots. And the Amazon it really shit. It's all like an iPhone advert, you know, yeah. the ones where it's like you can capture sunsets like this. That's like, you know, people yeah. think this is hot cinematography. Like, that is what it is. It's hot um, photography. <laughs> it's, um, um, no, but okay, the Amazon shit is yeah, problematic. Like, sure. you know, I'd, I'd refer you to more eloquent critiques of this. Like, Will Sloan was talking about how if this film is possibly about the American dream, like, organized labor is a huge part of, like, what gave Americans the American dream. Mm. And, you know, to be uncritical of, like, such a union-busting, like dehumanizing corporations such as amazon where people have to piss in bottles like i'm sorry like yeah. richard dawson's got an amazing song about it you should listen to that shit the fulfillment center it's insane mm. that's a way more uh interrogative like emotional meaningful look at someone who works at amazon than this film that's an eight minute song you know this is a two-hour film i don't know it's like yeah the only reason anyone would use the words critical or interrogative to describe this film it would be to describe the ways in which it's lacking Ah, oh, but it interrogates the sunset. It interrogates golden hour. <laughs> I don't know. The, the subjects of the film are portrayed as like sort of grasping a sort of destiny for themselves, you know, rejecting the system. But they're also like sort of docile bodies within that. And the only way that it can make it romantic and, you know, successful is 
to slap on this schmaltzy Einaldi. You've had a long-standing hatred for this man. I remember like watching This Is England with you and you being like, the score was so bad. You I, know? Just, <laughs> I just think it's the sort of music where it's signposts way too much. Whereas, I, I don't know. It, it all sounds like, like, a like a Clocks by Coldplay or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Well, I was telling oh, you how to feel. I never as learned. She, <laughs> I never she, practiced arpeggios. As she rides off into the sunset at the end, or, you know, on the unending journey that is nomadic life, and it's piping this shit in, yeah. it just makes you think, like, is this, like, a sad life? Is it? I don't know. It's, it's, a, just a, mani- it's a manipulative... Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's... Yeah. It's just power. It's just, like, cinema, baby, you know. For ra- you'd You'd rather have it be, like... Wagons, where's Star Rolling? <laughs> well, at least it would feel ironic. Whereas here, like, yeah, I don't know. But this is why this film is so deeply problematic to me because it's like, it is a neorealist film. And if you watch, like, ugh, I, hate, I sound like a dickhead right now, but like, if you watch Vitalina Varela or like La Terra Trema by Visconti or like Tony by Jean Renoir, all of these films are about lived experience. And I think the fact that like this film is like a leveling up for Chloe Zhao and like as a result is anchored around like. A couple of like the best actors in Hollywood, like Strathairn is fantastic as well. I gotta say, and Frances McDormand, like she doesn't make films unless it's gonna like. She's no Tilda Swinton to me. She's not like she's not like a ruiner because I think she's quite selective and like cool with the choice. And I, three billboards, like I don't want I don't want to even start. I don't want to talk about it at all because it's a whole can of worms. But much like the film we're about to discuss, but this film couldn't have been this film without Frances McDormand being in it or Amazon being in it. And as a result, it's, you know, a huge success. It's nominated for Best Picture. It's probably going to win Best Picture. But those are the things that actually ruin the film. And I think I'll probably like Chloe Zhao's other films a lot more. But, like, you can't have that artifice against, like, some sort of documentary realism lived experience. We were talking about, like, Swanky, who everyone loves, right, who dies in the film and is being interviewed in, like, Variety now. And stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's just too fucked up. I don't know. I was talking off mic to you earlier about, like, bad trip the eric andre vehicle i think this way of like you know it's disingenuous to call it verite i guess because this is such a manipulative film it's so dishonest i don't know it raises interesting questions but yeah here it's just i feel almost lost for words trying to describe this film because it's just it was a sort of non-entity for me i'm missing a lot i think because it's a film about grief right and she's like mourning her husband the whole time but like and that the passivity of the camera work or whatever in like all these boring ass like driving sequences where you've got nothing to look at like you just got the music to listen to and like the like complete absence of like her cultural world seems to be that of the the literal colonial settlers of America, right? She's driving around humming green sleeves. When she meets people, she fucking recites Shakespeare to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, Reformation. What Everything is, uh... went wrong with that fucking Reformation, man. <laughs> I said it before, I said it. <laughs> um, anyway, no, another but... rich tapestry of modern American oh. life. <laughs> no but like you know when they make it over here they make it with like michael portillo or someone like that and here in america it's like a dramatic exegesis and it's the most it's the realest drama you've ever seen and the cinematography again like we just talked about wendy and lucy on this podcast like a couple of months ago and stuff like that which is just watch that instead but also like this film I don't even like Terence Malick that much, but this film like rips him off so broadly with all this stuff. And it's so like the look at thisness of the 
cinematography. Mm. It was so boring. So now we're going to talk about a film that I was really gassed to see, and I think we both actually really enjoyed it as we well. We weren't going to review it for this podcast, because we were going to save it for the cinema so that we could see it properly. That's exactly right. And then it came onto Amazon. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> and you and thought home just, is just yeah. what you take with you. Yeah, and then we just lapped up that content. We slurped it up. Now, nah, I mean, I love Riz Ahmed. It's um, better that we're reviewing it in this episode as opposed to reviewing it next to like Bill and Ted and airheads and a, a bunch of rock and roll movies well sure the premise of this film um riz armor plays a drummer in a metal i'm doing air quotes band um how would what would this genre would you actually describe this as i don't know drone or whatever i couldn't yeah. I'm, i think about it i'm not it would come out on sacred bones that's what i'd have to say he is in a band uh like yeah this two-piece band with olivia cook from ready player one great um what's the band called oh black gammon one of the worst bands. Yeah, that's really not vibey. I'll pretend it wasn't on my short list. Next to Hacks and... It's a chess and... Um, bridge. Um, <laughs> at the beginning of the film, he realises he is losing his hearing, and then the rest of the film is about him dealing with that. I thought the sort of marketing was sort of misleading, as you've just alluded to. Um, it's not as much of a band film as you think, and it's no. way more about him... I think this is an interesting film to look at straight after Nomadland because they're both about like very niche communities, very like precarious existence. You might like this dude is a ex addict. He's a recovering addict and he's in a band and he's on tour and this shit happens to him on tour. Mm. And he has to sell his, he has to sell his band. It's deeply problematized. I think it's deeply like difficult. I think day to day. I think it communicates that about like being an addict or whatever. I thought his, that side of his performance was like, seriously convincing especially for a british actor or whatever to go over to america and be someone who's like grown up all over america and been like quite sure it's a very specific accent yeah, yeah um yeah. i think his performance is great um i guess one of the main things that yeah it's about this um you know physical impairment and like how he responds to it the way the darius marder does this is really cool i guess a lot of people have spoken about the sound design um and how it relates to you know we hear what he hears or as it were doesn't hear um and it also you know uses like shallow focus and specific like sort of camera techniques to convey that like psychological state in a really cool way yeah and i liked how it wasn't consistent as well it was like dangling that subjectivity objectivity thing where like sometimes you can actually hear Mm. but Mm. also a lot of the film is signed that's the main language of the film and like it's a film that is designed to be seen by like deaf and like people with hearing people like together 
in a cinema. I think Riz Ahmed said that, whatever. Shouts out. It's also cool how that journey of comprehension is dealt with, whereby like his girlfriend and bandmate sent him to this, I guess, sort of boot camp, almost like sort of charity home for, it's so specific, for like ex-addicts that are deaf or have turned deaf. He goes there to learn sign language and to like sort of work in a school and reintegrate himself like back into a sort of framework of like communication and intelligibility. Um, and the way they deal with that is, is interesting. Like obviously the viewer doesn't necessarily, like most viewers aren't going to know sign language like his character, but then they basically end up subtitling it like as he understands it more. Yeah, yeah. Um, all these things are good. It did have... I hate to talk about a film in these times or whatever, but like as an Oscar film, like as the kind of films Oscar likes to reward, like mm. it's a film about overcoming, like sure about like yeah coming to terms, reconciling. Yeah, but like... it is a bit more interesting, and like I feel like it doesn't fetishize deafness in a way that like other Hollywood films would. You know what I mean? Like it's a bit more nuanced, and like I think to put the viewer through it or whatever in a different. Yeah, definitely. You go along with. Riz Ahmed's character yeah as opposed to just you're just watching if Nomadland actor really act yeah. or whatever if Nomadland is like has a passive camera you know this yeah. is extremely psychological and you know, I guess manipulative in a good way because like it's using the language of film to mm. like take you somewhere like along with this character I heard some criticism about it from people with cochlear implants who say like it makes you not want to get cochlear implants because it makes it appear really fucked up but obviously that's someone's choice and like part of individual experience i think i mean there's a bit of a sort of minority report like like philip k dick sort of almost dystopian sure aspect to it but it's just real man but that's linked also to a you know a solid like capitalist critique as well definitely man the the but, twist can we call it that the twist um, or are you talking about the, the girlfriend character or whatever? yeah and this just is like, fascinating you know, to me man yeah this another the realest part of the film to me in terms of what i know about the fucking you know it's like oh you think there's some like fucking hard diy like metal band going around america on tour and then she's like loaded right and she just yeah she's her dad's like, from like a successful dynastic yeah. chanson like <laughs> French art pop and she can do that just as well as the like screamo metal which hey you know talented character but I think the way that as we were talking about this film turns into like a oh no Deplechan film in the last 20 minutes just yeah yeah with like Mathieu like, plays he her dad he's, he's so good um, it also in the comparison with like the diving bell and the butterfly is also mm. essentially valid here because um, in that film he plays a guy that like has a car crash and then has to learn to communicate like through blinking yeah that was like a really I, I say twist because you just didn't really see it going in that direction oh, no. um and it's felt like hanukkah you know just like a cutting like sort of european satire sort of thing almost and i guess derek cn france has like precedence in this i haven't seen field. like the place beyond the pines and rubbish yeah, yeah. Blue valentine like yeah. average but <laughs> he so he co-wrote it um and directed those films but yeah, I like the, the last part of this film the most. I thought that was the most interesting. So when he's been in like this very specific community and it's like very reflexive, full of like day-to-day learning and like cooperation and a real community. And then you go to like the most alienating place possible. Yeah. 
Paris. I don't understand how he got there. That's like a plot hole for me. <laughs> we didn't even talk about Paul Racy. He was amazing. He's nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And he's just been like a guy who's just been on TV for like 30 years. Yeah, he plays the um, sort of leader of the community that Riz Ahmed's character goes to. Um, and the character teaches him how to sign. Um, he has done that since he was a kid, as far as I understand. Two seriously good actors. They've got a couple of scenes together, Riz Ahmed and him, that are mm. just the best acted scenes I've seen for these like Oscar films, I think. I think because of how specific the dynamics there are, um, with the sort of addiction element and the sort of community mm. of deaf people. Yeah, there's so much going on there yeah, and man. like bubbling and it's really it's, good. I've been watching a lot of Le- Nicholas Ray films recently just because, well, he's my favourite. And I've been reading his book as well, his like lectures on like acting at film school. And Riz Ahmed, I think he's a fucking great actor anyway. I think he's, gr- mm. he's great in Four Lions, like great in Rogue One, great in Venom. <laughs> I'm not even taking the piss away. I like him as a... You know, the night of the school war, British Pakistani actor of our generation, sure. and he is comrade, you know, critic of yeah. imperialism. I've seen him live a couple of times with Heems, Sweatshop Boys. Great. Like, The Long Goodbye was a really good record from last year as well. But he's such a good, like, non verbal actor, man. Like, he communicates so much with his eyes. That's all Nicholas Ray fucking talks about, man. Not to privilege one sense over the other, but he's my best actor, like, for sure. Yeah. Of the nominees. It's and, a brilliant performance, yeah. Yeah, the film is worth watching for like a lot of reasons i really really rated it yeah yeah me too you're still listening to film grays you sure are (laughs) thank you (laughs) just a quick note now on mank the front runner at the oscars with 10 nominations swept the board yeah i realized now we haven't actually gone into any detail about the nominations or all the other films well i'll I'll tell you what they pretty much all got like six nominations each um and this one has 10 we're not really going to get into it no 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 please no we've discussed it before at length and you know it's context. I keep on forgetting about it. Every time I've looked at the nominations, I've like, <laughs> fucking mank. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But, you know, it's worth touching on just because it's really been rewarded in every category or at least acknowledged at this point yeah. in every conceivable category. How do you feel about that, Emmett? Um, well, I think this film is a travesty. <laughs> of a year of, like, we've already talked about some pretty dishonest, like, evil films, you know? Yeah. That we haven't finished. And um, Mank, to me, was the one that upset me the most, I think, just for, you know, still just, you know, the how they did my man Orson like that. And not even, like, <laughs> it's not even just that. That is it. That no, is but it. it's so fucked up, man. <laughs> that is 100% it. I know. Of it. It's, it's really bad. Like, I know a lot of people who've watched it. I don't know a lot of people who finished it, though. And everyone I know who's seen it's been like, that was ass. Like, that was terrible. We're approaching the 10-year anniversary of The Artist by uh, Michelle Hazanavishus, right? A remake of uh, Singing in the Rain. And it's like a silent movie, like the Melbourne Is that the premise? It it does the Singing in the Rain? It's essentially the same thing. Like, it's about, like, an actor who's, like, about to lose his job because he can't. He's got a stupid voice. Yeah, yeah, great. But that won the best picture, right? And, like... That is like, at least that's like super stylized, like the way it, that looks more like Sin City than like, it looks like Mank. This is stylized. It looks some, so shit. Yeah, it's some pound shop, Greg Toland. Like, that is sure. it. Like, pulling like, you know, it's more grey than black and white. I don't it's know. It's more 1D than 2D or 3D. 
<laughs> I think we should just leave it there for Mank. If you want to hear us talk about Mank, probably look forward to our next episode when we'll acknowledge that it's one best cinematography, best film, yada yada. Best performance everything. from Gary Oldman, <laughs> yeah. best, uh, best original screenplay from Jack Fincher, God rest his soul. But yeah, if you haven't listened to that one, do you go back and check it out. We did a lot of reading for it. Grey's and Kane. Mank is hilarious, man. <laughs> Now we're going to move on to the film which won the BAFTA for Best Original Screenplay and Outstanding British Film. Outstanding over there in America <laughs> on, on American soil. <laughs> it's, it's a debut from British actress, author, all-rounder, I guess, uh, Emerald Fennell. Polymath. <laughs> Her from uh, Call the Midwife and Chickens and she wrote Killing Eve Season 2. Great. She made like one short before this in 2018. It's called Careful How You Go. I think the description is like three stories about malevolent women. And that has like Phoebe Waller-Bridge in it. And, you know, it look, I guess it looks sort of similar. <laughs> I don't want to watch yeah, that. Yeah, I, I sort of wanted to watch it for <laughs> this, um, but I could only find like the trailer. Um, it's only like 14 minutes. But yeah, this okay. is her feature debut. Stars Carrie Mulligan as Cassie, a young woman who pretends to be drunk in pubs or clubs, gets picked up by men looking to take advantage of her, and then sort of turns the tables on them by revealing that she isn't drunk. That's sort of the premise of the film. I guess sort of like a ritual that is part of her character's vendetta against predatory behaviour and uh, sort of societal complicity because of the rape and suicide of her childhood best friend uh, like what at college mm. and yeah the trajectory of this film is just that sort of i guess sort of compulsive behavior escalating culminating in a sort of mutually destructive gotcha uh what do you think of it Ebert? do you enjoy it uh i thought this film was ass man i really 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 didn't like it but you know starts off from a commendable point that's it and that ritual that you described that culminates in the sort of epic owns mm. not too dissimilar to even like Ben Shapiro or something like that. I don't know. I'm not really equating them or whatever politically, but that sort of method in like a sort of rape revenge film mm. context is a, something like Miss 45 or, you know, loads and loads of classic examples, mm. but that's literally how like Emerald Fennell devised the film as like a pitch or whatever. It's just describing that first sequence with Adam Brody. And it's in all the trailers and you've probably seen it, mm. you know, mm. I'd say straight from that but, moment, I was watching it with Shan, and I think we tapped out like almost immediately. Maybe if you get on board with that conceit, it's easier to sort of go along with it. But straight away, it was like pretty eye rolly stuff. The dialogue really doesn't help either. <laughs> and it happens like five times. It's it's all like uh, sitcom actors, you know, much like the fifteen seventeen to Paris. All this like support, support. I had to do it. I had to bring it in. It wouldn't be this podcast without it. But yeah, it's all like weird, like people you've seen on TV and like McLovin and yeah. stuff. The structure of this film means that that's, they do get to do that sequence like about four or five mm. times. And it's the, it's not like, not mad different. It's quite like a repetitive thing or whatever. Yeah. I guess <laughs> that's why I use the word ritual because it is a sort of compulsive behavior. You know, it's, it's like sort of joker sure. mode um, as the film goes on. It is. Just like a really edgelordy film. <laughs> 
it's it's been super controversial, right? And I think a lot of people have really, really take like objected to it mm. on a number of levels. I think, and I think that is to do with its sort of like an original take on like being a revenge film or whatever. But the way it sets itself apart from that, including like sort of tricking another of the female characters played by like Alison Brie mm. into believing that she's been like date raped. I guess it is like joker mode, and like you're not supposed to entirely support the character and then other troubling sequences like telling the professor that her daughter's been like kidnapped or whatever mm. um maybe i don't have the appropriate language to critique what feels like really really fucked up to me about those sequences let alone the sort of mad cop proper propaganda sort of oh my god yeah element but i think these are quite serious problems man and they really like it got in the way of me like in the film, I mean, on a stylistic level and like a script level, I really didn't work for me either at all. Yeah. But <laughs> it has like truly objectionable qualities to it as well. Yeah, I think uh, I just definitely back up both those points. The sort of cop loving at the end, it ends on a sort of close up on a phone screen where um, it's like a winking face that she's like yeah. the big own, you know, as like the cops roll in. <laughs> a pretty mixed message there. <laughs> it's chilling stuff and you know it's quite like a shakespearean ending right mm. or whatever well when uh <laughs> i don't know i'm being yeah. too, i'm being too measured to be honest i really 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 didn't like this yeah. like I, I hate emerald for now as well i think she's insufferable basically to you know listen to her talk about this film. uh yeah it's never really get challenged about these sort of things either like she just gets asked the same questions all the time uh <laughs> yeah i really agree <laughs> on the politics um i don't know <laughs> that's another problematic <laughs> aspect of it i really didn't understand the sort of representation of her working in a coffee shop mm. which was just like really it's a really strange characterization like a character comes in an extra or whatever comes in and yeah. is like trying to order a coffee and she basically just tells her to fuck off and again i think that's meant to be like an own you know we went to be like yeah you tell them but as a critique like i don't know what what that is sure i didn't really like those scenes i didn't like the way it was lit i think laverne cox is pretty great but really it was not used for any you know her character had nothing to do whatever mm-hmm. despite being the sort of boss friend it's just like there in the background as i say yeah but i mean <laughs> stares out the window <laughs> Just to go back to the aesthetics then, because I feel like we haven't maybe really described that. And it is sort of idiosyncratic. I'd maybe even go so far as to say that it's comparable to Mank in, like, how its image is, like, sort of manipulated, you know? Like, it's extremely oversaturated. Mm. And I guess it's a sort of comic book feel to it. Sure. And, yeah, the sort of, like, snappy own dialogue is just... Ah. Ah. I'm sorry, listeners, if anyone was looking forward to us like rating this film. I just, I'm not even having a good time talking about it right now. You know, I didn't have a good time watching it. It's not for me. I'm not the target audience, but, you know, I didn't learn anything from it either or whatever. No, it certainly doesn't further the issue that it's centered around. But it is very didactic. Yeah, but I couldn't come away with the message other than like sexual assault is bad or, you know, word. I can dig it. I totally agree. But yeah, I, it's meant to be a black comedy. I don't think it's funny. It was... Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it was funny? No, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I had a very straight face the whole time. Sure.
you're still listening to the Film Grade Oscars special. Yeah, we've reached the end. The last of the eight. Um, the Bobby Seal of, of the... Um, we've, we've structured this episode well because both of us like weren't really bothered to watch this film. And it was like, we watched it very recently yeah. compared to all the other ones. It didn't even factor in. Like We were just like, oh yeah, whatever. Like, psh. Yeah, this is uh, Florian Zeller's um, a French uh, playwright and novelist, like esteemed, like upcoming, super rated. Uh, yeah, Some yeah. people say he's the playwright of his generation. Serious business. Um, it's an adaptation of his 2012 play, Le Père. <laughs> uh, Père the Jules, the well. father, starring Anthony Hopkins. Well, I was going to say Olivia Colman plays the daughter, but it's a bit more it complicated. Than... <laughs> um, Anthony Hopkins won the. After for best actor, yeah, he did apparently with great disinterest. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> oh, he didn't care, yeah, he was like in the other room or something. Yeah, he should have won it for Pope Benedict last year, man. Yeah. That knocked it out of the park once again. As you said, I was, I thought it was going to be way more sort of normy and not very interesting. The premise is basically Anthony Hopkins, his character, Anthony, his um, sort of cognition is deteriorating it's i guess it's really explicitly addressed like i guess it's meant to be dementia um but it's not it's not really put a name on it in the film and yeah it's way more interesting than i anticipated this is an art film man this is like mother (laughs) wow i was gonna say last year at marion bad but yeah okay yeah Um, i I only said it to antagonize you sure uh, mother exclamation mark yeah yeah, yeah. yeah sure okay it's got, it's got a bunch of interesting comparisons this is a film where every element of filmmaking like goes into a new experience sure undoubtedly so i think well i said earlier for sound of metal yeah. it sort of uses like film techniques to convey a sort of psychology or the physical condition of the character the whole film is defined by the different ways it does that as you know, sometimes Anthony Hopkins' character like feels more lucid and he's like almost tyrannical. Yeah. Other times, like he's just extremely vulnerable. Scenes sort of is stuck between like almost like a deja vu and like a, a sort of out of timeness, yeah. weird time cycles. If you like Christopher Nolan movies, like I don't know, it's an easy comparison to draw, but like this film is so brave and audacious with what it does with like the things that are good about tenant or whatever well there's a scene that sort of begins and ends in the same way very sort of you know it's like a ballet or something like extremely just like finely done um it was amazing what we said earlier about olivia coleman playing the daughter but you know not really but i mean she does but uh as part of the the father's like sort of deterioration or sort of losing his grasp on reality like sometimes characters appear as like other actors right there's a very small cast but like pretty much all the characters apart from him are amorphous i guess so like um mark gattis and rufus sewell both play um olivia coleman's husband or are they separated or like you know it's all like it's actually i'd love to see it on the stage to compare like Mm. how it's done you see i'm not interested in seeing it on the stage i think i'd i'd love like I've revealed myself to be such a bad cinephile by saying like I love courtroom dramas and I love like films of plays or whatever. But I don't really want to see this on the stage. 
I like to imagine that this was a new approach. Like they couldn't have really done what they did. Well, that's what I was wondering. Stage. Like, do they change the actors? I think one thing I read is that the set just like slowly degrades by the empties in like a white room, like on a on a hospital bed. Like, but in this, it's like even from shot to shot, like. They'd, they'd even, like, move around the camera and take something off the wall, like, while the camera is moving and stuff. Like yeah. That. yeah, 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 that's that's mad. This this would be a really good film to teach film with, I think, because it every element of movie making is, like, throw in, like, a Hitchcock sense. And, like, this film is, you know, made of L, classic setting for cin- the most cinematic area of London. Just around the corner from your primary school. Well, yeah, I know. I was going to say just around the corner from the flat in Dilem for Murder, another great film that- all set in a flat. Is that um big mask in the courtyard? Is that real? Do you know? Like, there's one shot with Olivia Coleman like walking out of the flat, and there's some crazy sculpture. Oh, thinking, that's is crazy. that really in Made of No, I, I've never like, seen that uh, before. Yeah. <laughs> but then they're taking putting placing sculptures like willy nilly in London these days. Um, but also Fish Called Wonder, you know, the flats of Made of Ale. Like, that's a film. That's a triple bill. <laughs> um, but much like you know. The fact that the setting changes or whatever and like it tells you something through the filmmaking is like more than I could say for any of these other films. The sequences in Eternal Sunshine that right. I love, like especially the most like sort of panicked bit where it's like in like Lacuna Industries yeah, yeah. Um, like office and it's like pretty nightmarish and like things are sort of warped. Like it's sort of like that, but like more subtle. Yeah. But this whole film is like that. Like it is really scary. Yeah. I yeah. watched it at seven in the morning and it was up there with Mouchette and Antichrist with the like most impressionable 7am film watching experiences I've had. And I don't regret it. But despite the state I was in, like watching it, I think this film would stand up to anything. You know, it was so strong. Yeah, it sort of blew me away considering <laughs> I expected it to be way more normal. It yeah. sort of reminded me of an episode of Inside Number Nine. Sure. If they That's had a, a really bigger, good point of comparison. Yeah, if they had a bigger casting budget and could get Anthony Hopkins, like it really felt like that. Especially, you know, the sort of snappiness of the script. And like, you know, it was like sort of clever and it's a bottle thing. Also reminded me of this film Love or Serelem by Carrie Mack I need from to see it. Um, the early 70s, I think. And that's just an amazing, very beautiful film about a woman that's looking after the mother of her like political prisoner mm. uh, husband. So the mum's like, again, like sometimes she's really lucid and like, you know, stern or whatever. And other times it's like, Almost like Proustian, like <sighs> I feel like this film like achieved a, a similar level of sort of poetry. It's, um, it's some serious shit, man. Yeah, man. can't believe like uh, I couldn't believe it. To be honest, I was really, really blown away. Actually, I guess I was ready to be blown away, but this film hit me harder than Saint Maud of the two sort of like carer mm. films. I mean, it was just heartbreaking, obviously, but like it was a tapestry, you know. A lot of different elements to it, a lot of different stages, and like very poetic dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> also, just quickly, because I think I'd be remiss without mentioning this, The Father did make me think about one of my favorite films ever a lot That Obscure Object of Desire, the last film by Louis Bunuel, which is a bit more like perverse. It's about like a sort of May, December 
romance is a bit nasty but that has two actresses playing one character and that it kind of made me think about the sort of senile element to do with Fernando Ray's performance and like where Louis Benwell was when he was making that film um I'd really recommend that uh maybe not if you like this film I don't think they're that comparable but that's an interesting one to me I loved it I thought it was best picture yeah why not it's just so hard to choose seeing that and promising young woman but I guess we'll see Thanks for joining us for this Oscar special broadcast by uh, Phil Graves. I, for one, am really looking forward to watching films from Hungary in the 1960s and stuff like again <laughs> yeah. uh, for this podcast as opposed to watching modern films. Mm. Well, soon we're going to be watching Altman films for the podcast, I guess. Oof. And he never won. No. Oh, wait, no, he definitely did. Mash won Best Picture. Nice. <laughs> but yeah, we're pretty gassed about the BFI Altman season. You're particularly excited about seeing Popeye soon, aren't you? I can't believe it's coming <laughs> to the big screen, man. Something I've waited for my whole fucking life. Yeah. That's like seeing Playtime or something like yeah, that, man. Yeah. Honestly, it's going to be so sick. I'm gassed, yeah. I hope they don't put it in screen three or some bullshit, man. Mm. The studio. But no, obviously looking forward to returning to that place. And I'm looking forward to watching the eighth annual on cinema Oscar special on the high network on, yeah. on sunday night yeah so i said this bullshit <laughs> <laughs> yeah it has been a slog getting through some of these films but some of them were good <laughs> i watched mank twice <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's been a couple of click through rewatches of some of these for me which is you know slightly sacrilegious but the most edifying way to watch a film yeah it's more than can be said for any of the you know, Oscar committee or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> they saw the climax of Fire Saga and they were like, yeah, best song. <laughs> that <laughs> it, it does say so much that that, as opposed to the people's favourite, Ya Ya Ding Dong, it says so much that that was the one that was put forward for recognition by the Academy, you know. Mm. The most mawkish song in the entire yeah. movie. <laughs> oh. Who do you think is going to win Best Picture? I'm asking you to get your Oscar, what is it, Oscarologist on. <laughs> um, I think it's a toss-up between Nomadland and Mank. Jeez, okay. Rich pickings. I fucking hope Mank wins everything, you know. <laughs> That's the only acceptable outcome Yeah. for me. Nomadland's been too controversial, man. Mm. <laughs> I think it's in with a big chance, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the father is just not going to win Best Picture. I'd like Minari to win. Yeah. That's uh. I think Oscar lo- will like Minari. <laughs> As opposed to some of these films which like Oscar. Mm. It's been fun. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Today's been fun. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Much love. Till next time. Thanks for listening. Yeah, do give us a rating or whatever on your podcast app of choice as well i'm emmett i'm sam thanks invite us to your awards jury (laughs) (laughs) because we clearly have what it takes